you do when you have a headache? What about a fever or a pain in your lower back? You might lie down, take a rest, but what would you do before that? You'd probably take an over-the-counter painkiller or anti-inflammatory. And depending on where you are in the world, you'd probably grab a couple pills of paracetamol, panadol, calpol, defalgan, doliprane, excedrin, or endopain, which is my personal favorite. Like, let's endo this pain. Or you'd reach for the bottle of Tylenol sitting in your cabinet, like it does in so many houses around the world. I mean, personally, my favorite is codeine. I mean... But you know... That's not available everywhere. (laughs) No, but you can't get it over the counter still in this country. Well, not in the US. That's unacceptable. But yeah, so that's exactly what the victims in today's case did. For a variety of reasons, they all reached for the Tylenol to devastating and lethal effect. Hi, I'm Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. Today we're talking about the Chicago Tylenol murders, which remain unsolved decades later. On September 29th, 1982, at 6.30am, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman woke up feeling ill in the Chicago suburb of Elk Grove Village. She had a sore throat and her parents decided she should stay home from school. Uh, She went to the bathroom, took two Tylenol capsules, which... For those of us outside of the US, is generally referred to as paracetamol, and I can't remember its proper chemical name. Uh, acetaminophen. And seconds later, her father Dennis heard something drop behind the bathroom door. He called out to ask Mary if she was okay, but got no reply. He opened the door and found Mary on the floor, unconscious, still in her pyjamas. Uh, he called 911 and paramedics rushed to the scene. They tried desperately to revive Mary, but nothing worked. And by the time they reached the Alexian Brothers Medical Center, Mary Kellerman was pronounced dead. It was just before 10am. When the medical examiner's office was notified, they didn't immediately find her that suspicious. Why not? <laughs> she's 12. I mean, yes. She's 12 and she had a sore throat and then dropped dead. Yeah, but not like she she wasn't obviously like stabbed to death or something. Oh. That's like... poor wording on my part. <laughs> but her body was sent for an autopsy because of the sudden manner of her death and her young age. Nick Pichos, an investigator with the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office, did a phone interview with Dennis Kellerman to make sure his story matched what the police found at their house and Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. At noon, 27-year-old Adam Janis went to pick up his kids from preschool. He had taken the day off from his postal worker job because he felt like he was getting a cold. On his way back home, he stopped at the store to buy some Tylenol. He got the kids home, and they all had lunch together. After that, he said, I'm going to take two Tylenol and lie down. Uh, A few minutes later... He stumbled into the kitchen and collapsed on the floor. Dr. Thomas Kim, uh, the medical director of Northwest Community Hospital's intensive care unit, recalled in an oral history of these incidents for Chicago Mag that doctors tried in vain to resuscitate Janice. Uh, And Dr. Kim determined the cause of death was probably cardiac, so some sort of like heart attack or heart failure. Janice's family, including wife Teresa, his parents, and siblings, had all gathered at the hospital, and Dr. Kim tried to explain why Janice had died, even though doctors weren't sure what had happened. Janice's family left the hospital and returned, not to their own homes, but to Adam Janice's home in Arlington Heights. At 3.45pm, Mary Lynn Rayner was at her home in Winfield, she had given birth to her fourth child only a week earlier, and she wasn't feeling well. Not surprised. Yeah, right. So she took some Tylenol and quickly collapsed. Her husband Ed arrived home shortly after Lynn collapsed. Uh, she was rushed to Central DuPage Hospital. The Janus family had gone back to Adam Janus's house and were planning his funeral. Adam's younger brother Stanley struggled with chronic back pain, so he asked his wife, Teresa... 
So Adam's wife was also called Teresa, but they are spelled differently. Yeah, it's a bit confusing. Yes, this is not a weird uh, (laughs) sister-wife, brother-husband situation. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, he asked his wife, Teresa, to get him some Tylenol. Uh, She gave him two pills and then took two pills herself. First, Stanley collapsed, then Teresa collapsed. Dr. Kim was about to leave the hospital when he was informed that the Janus family was coming back to the hospital for treatment. He assumed the patients were Adam's parents, who were older and might not be coping well with the death of their son. He was surprised to learn it was actually Adam's brother and sister-in-law who were being brought in. Uh, Dr. Kim had spoken to Stanley and he seemed like a strong, healthy young man. But Stanley Janus was pronounced dead at 8.15pm. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Charles Kramer from the Arlington Heights Fire Department had been on scene as Stanley and Teresa Janice were being tended to by paramedics. Uh, Kramer realized something had to be going on, so he called public health nurse Helen Jensen to help out. Kramer told her, quote, there's something going on here. We had a death this morning, and now we brought in two more from the same house. And Jensen, who had been eating dinner when the phone rang, dropped everything and headed for the hospital. Jensen found Adam's wife, Teresa, so the still ambulatory Teresa, uh, in the hospital and started asking her questions. What exactly had happened that morning when her husband had collapsed? What had happened for the rest of the day? She was hoping to uncover some kind of link between these deaths. Investigator Nick Pichos was also trying to figure out what was happening. He went to the hospital to speak with Dr. Kim and Nurse Jensen. Uh, When the doctor admitted he had no clue what was going on, Pichos suggested he and Jensen head to the Janus house to see if anything stood out to them. At 6.30pm, 31-year-old Mary McFarland was at her job at Illinois Bell, which is a telephone company, in Lombard, and told her co-workers she had a headache. She went into the back room and took some Tylenol for her headache, uh, but within minutes she had collapsed. Jensen and Pichos arrived at the Janus house at 8pm and began searching, but nothing stood out. Pichos went into the basement and found metalworking equipment. He knew that metalworkers sometimes used cyanide for polishing, so he searched for anything that might be poisonous, but found nothing. Well, I learned something new. I know, right? It's like, I I, did not know that. (laughs) uh, Nurse Jensen was upstairs when she found a shelf full of over-the-counter medications. It was there that she found a bottle of Tylenol with six capsules missing. She put it together. Six missing capsules and three people dead from the same home. Wow. Why is she not, like, a detective? Right? I love this lady. So she knew that Tylenol had to have something to do with the deaths, so she and Bijos brought the bottle back to the hospital. Just like... that That's incredible. Absolute genius. Also, how do you pick out the one bottle uh, uh, out of, like, a shelf full? It's just like, mm. oh, here. <laughs> it's, this one. it's this one. Yeah, and I, I also find it, find it strange because for as long as I can remember, it's always been blister packet. Yeah, uh, medication here. I know it's obviously different in yeah. in the United States, but so like if I've got a box of tablets and they've got like two or three she- like blister sheets in, when I've finished one, I will chuck it. Mm-hmm. Like so, so it wouldn't be obvious so, necessarily if it was like, oh, they took no. these pills today or whatever. For her to be able to like put that together and also. Some of those bottles of tablets, like, there's, like, hundreds of tablets in some of them. Yeah. Like, how do you know that just, like, a few are missing? It's amazing. I, yeah. It, it's incredible. I mean, I guess that's part of her job as a public health nurse to, like, notice these sorts of things. Yeah. But just, like, still super cool. Mm. At 9.30 p.m., 35-year-old flight attendant Paula Prince stopped in at a Walgreens on Northwell Street to buy some Tylenol after working a flight from Las Vegas into O'Hare. Uh, Jensen and Pichos made it back to the hospital by 10 p.m. Jensen was adamant that the Tylenol was the cause of the deaths. 
but people weren't quick to believe her. After all, people all over the world took Tylenol every day and survived. I took it literally five minutes before we started recording. Exactly. I gave my wife some this morning. I mean, we've been in here for a while, so I'm assuming she's still alive, but like, still. Well, if she's not, I mean, this episode won't see the light of day anyway, so. <laughs> True. <laughs> but Nurse Jensen was persistent. Dr. Kim was open to her theory, but still couldn't figure out what had actually killed his patients. It wasn't just Tylenol. The only thing he could think of was cyanide poisoning, but that seemed ridiculous. Still, he decided to test blood samples from the patients who had died, and the hospital didn't even have the capacity to run tests for cyanide, so he actually had to send out the samples to another lab. The bottle of pills from Mary Kellerman's house had been inventoried by the paramedics, and Pichos had them bring it into the hospital. When it arrived, Pichos realized that both bottles of pills had the same control number, MC2880. He called up the medical examiner to tell him about this discovery, and Deputy Medical Examiner Donahue told him to open the bottles and smell them. When Pichos opened the bottles, everything seemed normal, but as he poured out the capsules, he noticed a strong smell of almonds. Uh, they both said it at the same time. Cyanide. cyanide. <laughs> Say it with us. Cyanide. Cyanide. Uh, Donahue told uh, Chicago Mag, I was very lucky because, because Pichos was able to smell cyanide. Only about half the population can smell it. I didn't know that. I didn't either. That's why I put that in there. It's like, just mm. in case you think everyone can smell it, they can't. Yeah. I, I know they say it like smells of like, like um is it bitter almonds is normally yeah the, um the description used but i didn't realize that mo- like half the population can't actually smell that now i'm curious if i can but i also don't want to go encounter some cyanide to find out you don't want to accidentally snot cyanide yeah, no, not so much <laughs> so we've covered cyanide poisoning here on the show before but for a little refresher Cyanide is a chemical asphyxiant that blocks red blood cells from using oxygen. This causes suffocation, brain damage, and cardiac arrest. And it all happens very quickly. Yeah. As, you know, evidenced by the fact that people are taking it and dropping down. Just immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So by 1am on September 30th, Dr. Kim had the lab tests back and the suspicions of Jensen, Pichos, and Donahue were confirmed. Uh, The victims each had massive amounts of cyanide in their blood, in some cases 100 to 1,000 times more than the necessary amount to kill them. So at 3.15am, Mary McFarlane was pronounced dead at Good Samaritan Hospital in Downers Grove, and Marilyn Reiner was pronounced dead at Central DePage Hospital at 9.30am. Uh, But because these victims were being brought into various Chicago area hospitals, police, doctors, and investigators didn't initially realize the deaths were connected. It was only once the word spread that other similar deaths were occurring in other towns that they were able to see the connection. Which is fair, like... Yeah, especially, let's say, back in the 80s, you didn't have, like, the same centralized database. I mean... The internet wasn't even invented then, was it? Not in the way that we know it now. Well, you know what I'm like. Wasn't being used no. by uh, by police in no, in definitely that not. Time. And also, like, I honestly wonder if if the the three people hadn't died in one house, if the connection certainly wouldn't have wouldn't have been made this quickly, but also mm-hmm. if it would have been made at all. Because, like, yeah. that's the thing. It's like, okay, three people are in this house. They were all relatively healthy people. There has to be something in their environment. But if it's just, yeah. like, random deaths around the county, I don't know. Yeah. By 10 a.m., an attorney from Tylenol's parent company, Johnson & Johnson, maker and purveyor of basically every kind of consumer product you can possibly think of uh 
and including COVID vax. Yes, yeah, that's true. Um, so Johnson & Johnson sent an attorney to the medical examiner's office, and the toxicologist there explained what they had found. Tylenol bottles riddled with arsenic. Roy Dames, the CEO of the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office at the time, recalled, My first reaction was, let's make sure there's no other connection between these deaths before we go and tell people not to take Tylenol. So they proved it to me, and I said, great, let's go. Uh, he then called the CEO of McNeil Consumer Products, which is the company that manufactured Tylenol, and informed him that they would be holding a press conference. When Nurse Helen Jensen woke up after a fitful, almost sleepless night, her husband told her the morning news was blaming the deaths on Tylenol. The press conference laid out the incidents, how the victims had died, and warned people to hold off taking Tylenol for the time being. They still didn't know how the cyanide was getting into the capsules, but they wanted people to be aware of the potential danger. It was at this point that Jensen realised nobody had called up the police department to tell them exactly what was going on. She called the police and told them that they needed to take Tylenol off the shelves of the Chicago stores. Police initially balked at the idea, uh, but the deputy chief of police was on the call and immediately agreed that it was the best option. By 3pm, Johnson & Johnson announced the recall of all Tylenol from Control Lot MC2880. Uh, Roy Dames spent the rest of the day fielding calls from concerned citizens who had taken Tylenol and were worried that they might be next. There's a quote that I didn't put in here, but I just really loved that he said, like, he was getting all these phone calls and he ultimately just started saying to people, look, if you've taken Tylenol and you're able to call me, you don't need to worry. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, you'd know. Mm. So the deaths and the information that something as common and innocuous as Tylenol had caused them, obviously, caused a panic. And while the world began to panic, investigators still had no idea who had poisoned the pills. By 8pm on September 30th, the Illinois General Attorney, Tyrone Farner, was called in to help organise the investigation alongside Illinois State Police Director James Zagel. Uh, on the morning of October 1st, Fainer brought together members of state police, local law enforcement, police chiefs, uh, state police director Zagel, and even federal agents to help with the investigation. They had no clue how big the issue was. You know, was it just Chicago? Just Illinois? What about the rest of the country or even worldwide? Uh, by that evening, Teresa Janice brother's wife that is very confusing isn't it yeah Teresa janice who had taken the tylenol was taken off life support at northwest community hospital and was pronounced dead police also discovered the body of paula prince in her apartment in old town after her family and friends had failed to reach her in prince's apartment police found an open tylenol bottle on the bathroom vanity uh, she had taken the Tylenol, taken a few steps towards the bathroom door, and then collapsed. Uh, and as a confirmation, police found security camera photos of Prince buying the Tylenol at Walgreens the night before. Prince's death got Chicago Mayor Jane Byrne and Chicago Police Superintendent Richard Brezik involved. And uh, even with Google Translate, we struggled with that, so we're really sorry. Yes. And late that night, Mayor Byrne held a press conference officially stating that all Tylenol would be removed from Chicago shelves. By October 4th, the Chicago City Council also passed an ordinance requiring tamper-resistant packaging for all drugs sold in stores in the city. On October 5th, Johnson & Johnson recalled all Tylenol products nationwide. That was about 31 million bottles of pills with a value of more than $100 million. So we'll talk more about Johnson & Johnson's response to this crisis in a minute, but for now we'll look at the investigation. Johnson & Johnson acted quickly by recalling the bottles of Tylenol from the MC2880 control batch, but two of the deadly bottles coming from the same manufacturing batch turned out to be largely coincidental. 
Uh, further investigation found that the tainted bottles came from different drug manufacturing companies and locations. This led investigators to conclude that the pills weren't being altered at the factory, but it was more likely that someone was purchasing or taking the bottles from Chicago stores, filling the capsules with cyanide, and then putting them back on the shelves. And it's important to remember that at this point in time, the only thing standing between consumers and their over-the-counter medications was a cotton ball. No childproof lid, no foil safety seal, no plastic bottle wrapper. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Which is all normal to us now. Yeah. And the drugs inside were openable capsules with powder inside. So it makes sense that someone could alter the pills, put the bottles back on the shelf to then be sold as new to unsuspecting buyers. Just terrifying. Very, yeah, very, very scary when you think about yeah. it. Um, so along with the five bottles that were found with the victims, a handful of other contaminated bottles were later recovered in the Chicago area. This led investigators to suspect they were looking for a single culprit intent on causing random harm and widespread panic. Attorney General Feiner goes as far as to call it an act of terrorism. He said to Chicago Mag, uh, there was no intended victim, just random victims, not unlike what happens in the world today when people throw pipe bombs. Up until that time, when you had mass murderers like Richard Speck, these were people who had selected victims and decided what they were going to do or not going to do. But this was, this really was random. And that's what terrorism is to me, to frighten or kill indiscriminately. Uh, the police began checking in on any potentially disgruntled former Johnson & Johnson employees. And detectives spoke to several people who J&J had fired and while a few seemed potentially capable of the crime, uh, none were ever considered seriously as suspects. On October 6th, Johnson & Johnson received a letter demanding $1 million in exchange for an end to the poisonings. Investigators quickly discovered that the letter was sent by a man named James William Lewis. Lewis was a man with a rough childhood and a troubled past who had already had run-ins with the law. Uh, he had been arrested for a number of charges in the past, including assault and murder. Uh, and in the murder charge, he and his wife had started a bookkeeping company and were arrested in 1979 for the murder of their very first accounting client. That, that's not a good way to get return business. No, it is not. Uh, 72-year-old Raymond West. Police believed Lewis and his wife had killed and dismembered West and then hid the man's body in his own attic and then proceeded to withdraw money from his bank accounts. Again, not a great way to run an accounting business. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, however, the case against Lewis consisted of mostly circumstantial evidence and was ultimately dismissed. Lewis's fingerprints were found on the envelope sent to Johnson & Johnson, and he was arrested and charged with extortion. Police and the Justice Department investigators believed Lewis was responsible for the poisonings. However, Lewis and his wife had been living in New York at the time of the murders, and police couldn't find any evidence to link them to the crime. It was later later revealed that Lewis had sent the second had sent a second extortion letter to then President Ronald Reagan, as you do, yeah. warning the Tylenol poison, poisonings would continue unless the federal government overhauled taxes, which is like no small demand. No, <laughs> but you know, bang on profile for accountants. That's true. Very fitting. <laughs> That is the kind of grievance they might have with the government. <laughs> I don't like how you're doing this. <laughs> is it worth poisoning, like, a specific city for? No. no. <laughs> uh, in this letter, he also threatened to crash remote-controlled airplanes into the White House. Lewis was convicted of extortion and sentenced to 20 years in prison. Wow, that's a lot. Because yeah. we generally think of, like, because this is white-collar crime and mm -hmm. that he had no involvement with the actual 
murders. He was just trying to extort money. I wonder if... And and a federal <laughs> law uh, overhaul. Yeah. I wonder if because, like, investigators believed that he had something to do with the murders that he actually got a, a harsher sentence because of that. Quite possibly. He served 13 and he was released in 1995 and he denies any involvement in the Tylenol murders. A handful of other suspects were investigated and later cleared, but the case quickly went cold. Uh, over the years, the case has been worked on by all sorts of law enforcement teams, including local, state and federal investigators. FBI profiler John Douglas was even involved uh, with the case in 1983 and worked with Chicago journalists to publish the address and grave location of the first victim, Mary Kellerman. Douglas believed running this information in the news might encourage the killer to visit the gravesite, but nobody appeared at the location. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, and it's... That is kind of in keeping with, like, these kinds of killers, I feel like, that, like, want the attention or, like, want to see the effect of their mm. crimes. But... Yeah, and... um it's seen a lot in serial killer cases oh, as yeah, well. Oh yeah, for sure. Turning up at funerals and things. Yeah. Uh, the Chicago Police Department released one of the surveillance photos of Paula Prince buying Tylenol at Walgreens. The photo shows Prince in the centre of the frame and a bearded man in the upper right corner of the photo. Police believed that the, the bearded man may have been the killer and may have been James Lewis. Which, like kind of looks like him but also kind of just looks like any bearded guy in the early 80s <laughs> yeah so i don't know about that um so now we're gonna skip forward to 2009 which is a big leap <laughs> mm. basically throughout that entire time the case was still technically open but there were no real breaks ice cold yeah, basically so in 2009 illinois authorities refocused their efforts in the case fbi agents searched james lewis's home in cambridge massachusetts and took a number of items into custody but again this didn't lead anywhere the fbi said in a written statement quote this review was prompted in part by the recent 25th anniversary of this crime and the resulting publicity Further, given that many recent advances in forensic, forensic technology, it was only natural that a second look be taken at the case and recovered evidence. In an interesting turn of events, the FBI requested DNA samples from none other than Unabomber Ted Kaczynski in 2011. Kaczynski denied any involvement. But the idea isn't that crazy. The first four Unabomber crimes occurred in Chicago, and the surrounding suburbs between 1978 and 1980. And Kaczynski's parents had a home in the Chicago suburb of Lombard in 1982, where he would occasionally stay. And this kind of random mass hysteria crime does fit in with Kaczynski's credo denouncing society, industrialization, and technology, especially if you think of pharmaceuticals as a technology. I mean... Yes, in a way, but it's all developed from old medicine anyway. Yes, so. but his whole thing was how industrialization was destroying the environment. So drug production, chemical production, that sort of thing, I could see yeah. that. Mm -hmm. And add on top of that, Kaczynski wasn't captured until 1996. So it is definitely possible that he could have committed the murders. So I don't know a lot about about uh, Ted Kaczynski, but I thought he was captured long before no. that for some reason. He, but I, th I was also thinking he was active, uh, like the Unabomber crimes were were earlier than that as well. Oh yeah, um, a really great. It's a dramatization, but it's it's. I think it was worked on by a few of the FBI profilers who ultimately cracked the case it's called manhunt unabomber i think it's on netflix on netflix i've yeah. seen that it's yeah. really but really good it's it's just 
jumbled in my brain with a lot of other things. Yeah. So. But if anyone wants to know more about the his crimes, that's a really good mm-hmm. one. I think there's also a documentary out there that's pretty good too. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's really interesting. Like I said, my brain has mixed up the dates with when Kaczynski was active and, and captured. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you say pharmaceutical, chemical production. Yeah, that's very feasible. It's interesting. Like, it's an interesting thing to think about because pretty much his, mm, the majority of her, his crimes were bombings. So it's a different mm. MO, but also yeah. it's kind of early in the grand scheme of his crimes. So, like, I don't know. I, it, I, it's definitely something that I, I don't mind entertaining because, like, it makes sense in a way. Yeah. But also, it makes sense in a way that literally anyone could have done this. <laughs> so that's yeah. part of the problem. That, that that's the problem when there's no it's a clear perpetrator. Yeah. Is that you do you do it for every crime. You start to look at who's got previous. Yes, who's who else was around. Um and sadly that in many instances has taken place way off track yeah. and allowed very dangerous individuals to keep on killing. But in other times it has proved absolutely spot on. Yeah, so so goes both ways. Yeah. But yeah, so Kaczynski's involvement has never been proven and he denies any involvement, which he doesn't really have a huge motivation to stay quiet about it. Like he's, he's in prison for life. Mm. He's never going to get out. Like he's already been convicted of God knows how many crimes, several murders. So, but then again, there's other, other criminals like, um, like Peter Tobin, he's in prison for life and they know that there's other, other like there's other crimes that are connect, he's connected to. He knows he's never gonna but gonna get out, but he still won't say a word. Yeah. There's lots of of killers who are in for life, but they still and still refuse to talk about their other crimes. Yeah. Even though in some cases it could help, even with parole. Yes, definitely. It's an interesting theory, but I don't think we'll know anytime soon anyway. Um, Yeah, so the case still remains unsolved today, nearly 40 years later. Next year will be 40th anniversary. Wow, that's wild. Uh, Today, when you think of massive pharmaceutical companies, you're likely to think of companies like Purdue Pharma, the makers of OxyContin. Uh, who willfully aided and abetted doctors to prescribe more opioid painkillers leading to the current opioid epidemic. And I will say, I joke about taking codeine because it's something I've taken on prescription and because I have long-term health problems, I do not joke about the opioid (laughs) epidemic because I know it's very serious, but I also, when you live with long-term health problems, you have to laugh about it, otherwise you curl up and die. (laughs) So in case anyone thinks I sort of take make fun or take it very lightly, I don't. It's just gallows humor gets you through a lot. Yes, that's that's definitely true. So and while large corporations rarely put the customer before the bottom line, oh, but we said rarely as if it happens at all. Like me. <laughs> As the details of the Tylenol murders came to light, Johnson and Johnson reacted swiftly and remarkably well. Uh, in addition to recalling all the Tylenol with the same control number as some of the tainted bottles, and then and then recalling all Tylenol products nationwide, they also told customers that they could exchange any bottles of Tylenol capsules for bottles of solid pills at no uh, at no charge, to put their fears at ease. That, I mean. They're going to lose money either way because if you recall a product, you're then going to have to refund it. Yes. Because you're recalling it for a reason. Yeah, exactly. There's something wrong with it. But yeah, that's definitely very good PR as well. Yeah. It's like, hey, 
look here if you're still worried if you're still not sure about us here's here's a pill that like if someone's fucked with it you can tell uh johnson and johnson also worked closely with law enforcement to help search for the killer by november johnson and johnson had introduced a new packaging technique that included a triple sealed bottle that would help customers know the products they were buying hadn't been tampered with this type of packaging, in addition to stricter quality control methods and a shift away from capsules towards solid pills, was adopted by the pharmaceutical industry at large and changed the way we interact not just with drugs but with many other consumer products. Uh, Alan Hilberg, a public relations expert who worked with Johnson & Johnson during the crisis, told the New York Times in 2018, We concluded we were never going to be judged by what caused the problem. We were always going to be judged on how we responded to it. And he was absolutely right. Mm. Uh, that reminds me of, of a quote I once read, and it's, it doesn't matter how you fuck up, it matters how you deal with it. Yeah, exactly. In in the grand scheme of of mistakes or, you know, failings, like, ultimately, it's not the mistake that matters. It's like, did you cover it up? Did you deal with it head on did you tell people what was going on like yeah. that's the big thing um yeah and, i do oh, wonder ahead. what the reaction would be if that happened god forbid if that kind of thing happened today because i don't think it would be don't think it would be the same no there'd no. be so much of nope nothing to do with us well, I mean, again, just look at Purdue Pharma. Like, it, yeah. it's been in the news this week. The The company is being dissolved and fragmented as part of their settlement for covering up their, like, involvement in this whole opioid thing. And, mm. like, they didn't care. They just wanted to sell more pills. It's interesting because you think about the 1980s and they're often depicted of as this time of like massive economic excess and corporate growth and like just profit. Mm. And here's this massive multinational company being like, okay, we're going to take the hit. And, you know, they're doing that obviously for two reasons they're doing it to protect their customers but also to protect their bottom line mm. or re you know reputation but yeah if if you're doing one and it it benefits the other like at least yeah. that's something if you're doing one in in opposition to your customer's safety i think that's what we see more often yeah and in this in this Chicago Mag article, it was interesting because I think it was the medical examiner who had first been talking to like the people at Johnson and Johnson. He was like, "Oh, when the attorney came in and we explained everything, he realized now that we knew that it was Tylenol and that it was being laced with cyanide, we couldn't not release this information." Mm. And uh, also, when he spoke to the CEO, I guess the CEO was like, do you have to do a press conference? And he's like, yeah, we really do. And he's like, yeah, okay, you're right. So, mm -hmm. like, I feel like now you'd see a lot more resistance. You'd see a lot more, like, legal opposition to that. Yeah, there'd be injunctions and things yeah. taken out. Yeah. Whereas I say, when, there's a, when you're holding a press conference, you at least have some even if it's the police holding the press conference, you at least have some knowledge and control in that situation. Yeah. And I think they made the right choice to say like, okay, well, this is going to come out no mm -hmm. matter what. We might as well find ourselves on the right side of it. Yeah. Uh, Johnson & Johnson's quick response and transparency with both customers and lawmakers is now often taught in business schools as an example of how to properly handle a crisis. Uh, and the company managed to regain the trust they had lost and by 1983 had nearly completely regained their market share, which is amazing in like in the space of a year. Yeah. 
uh, which just proves that it is possible for companies to protect both their customers and their profits. Following the Tylenol murders, there were several copycat crimes. Some involved Tylenol and other over-the-counter drugs, but some involved other products. And following the murders in Chicago, product tampering became a federal crime, leading to harsher sentences for some of these copycat crimes. For example, Stella Nacal was sentenced to 90 years in prison for tainting Excedrin capsules with cyanide and killing two people. Wow. Yeah, it's a but long time. Double murder, 45 years? Yeah. Each? It's it's a life sentence, and in in, in in other words, isn't yes. it really? Yeah, in, literally in other <laughs> words. <it's... laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so the investigators, doctors, nurses, and politicians who initially handled the case all have their various theories. Superintendent Brezdick told Chicago Mag, "Quote: My opinion is that this was an initial homicide where the bad guy knew the victim, and that was it." And then to cover it up, the bad guy went and contaminated the other ones. That motive makes the most sense to me. Uh, one firefighter believes the motive behind the killings was to, quote, bring the United States to its knees, which it did in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, Attorney General Feiner told Chicago Mag that he was still shocked the crime hadn't been solved. He said, in all the time I was a relevant part of the investigation, I always thought that it would have been resolved. I would have bet anything on it. I didn't see how we could have that kind of manpower, that much analysis, and that it wouldn't be solved. I just didn't believe it then, and I don't believe it now. But alas, never has been. And that is the story of these still unsolved Tylenol murders. I I gotta admit, it is kind of surprising that it still hasn't been solved yeah. with all the developments in technology. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's never happened since, mm-hmm. so it's possibly been deprioritized. Like, it's like it's not a priority. Yeah. I think that like in investigations like this where you get to a certain point where you you've basically found all the information but mm-hmm. nothing new is coming up from that. It's sort of like, well, where do you go? And I also think from everything that I read, a lot of law enforcement believed that James Lewis was actually responsible for the murders. Mm. Um, but just through the nature of like evidence they could not definitively tie him to it. Yeah. So if that's the case, and then like, you know, he went to jail for 13 years, 13. like, I don't know. I could see that maybe being why, like it didn't continue. And it brought about massive change in the way that medication is, is sold. Yeah. It's funny because I was I was talking to my mom on the phone last night. And I was telling her that we were going to do this case. And she's like, I was like, do you remember it? Because 1982, she was living in L.A. at the time. Um, she's like, I don't really remember the case, but isn't that why, like, we now have all these childproof lids and, and you know, safety seals and stuff? I was like, yeah, that's exactly right. So, like, it definitely has had this massive cultural impact Mm. but also to me just to think that there was a time when you didn't have childproof lids on (laughs) because as i'm saying this i'm realizing so you can get like over-the-counter sleeping pills that come in those kind of bottles Uh which i just realized because i've had them before Uh um which you know have like the child lock you've got to turn it to line them up and then they've obviously got the foil seal and everything so, yeah, as, as I think about it, there are there are obviously things in the UK in like sold in that kind of form, but yeah, just predominantly we seem to have like the blister packets. But yeah, so it'd be interesting to find out if that had like a, an impact globally. Yeah, which it, it 
very well could have done with with Johnson and Johnson being such a global brand. Well, the thing that I kept thinking about while I was writing this up was like, it's not just drugs. Like, if you think about when was the last time you opened a new bottle of ketchup, what did you have to do with it? Oh yeah. So yeah, like, you've got to take the little foil yeah. seal out. Yeah. But no, it's interesting because like, I don't know, I, I wanted, uh, the public health nurse, Nurse Jensen, uh, spoke in the article and she was like, I didn't have any over-the-counter medication in my house for years. And I was terrified. I was terrified that, you know, they'd be poisoning the food that we ate and bought and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, it's a fair like when you see it up close, that's a fair fear to have. Yeah, and of course we we are looking at it in like with the benefit of hindsight because it happened yeah. nine years before we were born. Yeah. And and we so, look at it from a world where your ketchup does have a foil seal on it. You know, your your cereal comes in the foil bag or the plastic bag or whatever. So but no, it it's definitely it seems like one of those like crimes of the century or like events Mm. of the century because and it did it changed so much yeah um but yeah i have no clue (laughs) who could have done it yeah i don't think we ever will know at this point like no 40 years has passed i think barring some sort of major discovery somewhere somehow yeah, because it it's not like um like the Golden State Killer where it's DNA and genealogical technology that's developing. There's there's no DNA because the capsules were ingested. Yeah, they're gone. <laughs> so that that's gone, and unless there is like a very specific chemical profile for that cyanide, yeah, that can somehow be tracked to where Some it was other... produced, yeah. But then at this point, like if if that if tracking that profile down took any amount of time, then you can't match it now. Like yeah. it's it, all of that information is gone. So and then and then you've got to look at what kind of poison registry there is mm-hmm. in the US now or at, in the 1980s. Yeah. And also, like, I would imagine that, because there are some uses for things like cyanide and arsenic that in industry, mm-hmm. and so I would imagine that, you know, if you had a job in a metalworking factory or something, like, maybe you, you'd had yeah. a- access to this, then it it would have been purchased legally and on the record, but someone could come in and, you know, take some Anything- or think the size of capsules yeah. it's a very tiny amount yeah so like even if you filled uh, what they found at least five bottles so even if you filled mm. you know a hundred pills in five bottles you don't need a five gallon barrel of no cyanide powder you barely even would need like a cup yeah you, you need very little so mm. When you're thinking about that small amount, trying to trace that down would be so hard. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think it's very unlikely that we'll we'll ever find out, yeah. barring a deathbed confession. Yeah, and like I think that the Unabomber theory is really interesting, but again, it's like uh, we're not going to know if he, if no. if he's decided. So I looked it up. Ted Kaczynski is seventy nine, mm. and. He's just decided, yeah, I did this, but I'm not. I'm not going to say anything about it. We're never going to know. Yeah, which he is with. He's yeah. within his rights. Of course, it, it's the the literal premise of of our justice system, both here and in in the United States, and in most countries, is innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, you do not have to say anything, and, and you do not have to take the stand in your own defense. Yeah, and you have a right against self incrimination. Yeah. So if he's decided if if he if if yeah. he did do it and he's decided, nah, I'm not gonna say anything, well, 
burden of proof is on law enforcement. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's shitty, but that is a constitutional right. Yeah. And if it was James Lewis, then obviously they couldn't find enough evidence to support that burden of proof. No. So. So, yeah. Um, once again, we have solved nothing. Yep. Uh, but if that's your thing, and if you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. If you want to suggest a case or a theme for us to cover, send us a message on social media or email us at info at squaremileofmeta.com. And we've got we've been getting some good uh, case recommendations through the email, so keep them coming. We, uh, we like them. And if you would like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest in the future of the show, you can join our Patreon page. Tiers start at just one pound per month. Every patron gets regular episodes a day early, a shout out on the show, priority case requests, and a lifetime merch discount. And that's just for one pound. Uh, as the tiers go up, you get even more, including bonus episodes, exclusive merch, and access to our entire bonus episode archive. So check that out at patreon.com slash square mile of murder, uh, the links to which are in all of the usual places. Thanks for listening. We'll uh, see you next week. Yeah. See you then. Bye. Bye.